Welcome to the Language of Creativity podcast, episode three. What's in a name? I'm trying something a little bit different. I have the mic rolling while I am solo here, uh, just to warm up in the I Create Sound Studio podcast room because it has been a couple weeks since I've recorded an episode. I am extremely busy at the moment mixing two albums and uh, mixing demos for third project and um, just kind of an overall wrap-up mode on a lot of things all at once, including this project that you're hearing the, the music in the background, Lobate Scarp, Adam Sears, from the upcoming album, You Have It All. Podcast came out, very, very pleased with how it's turning out and all the other little nuts and bolts that go along to that. There's a lot that goes into launching a business. I had an idea, but I think most most of the time you have no idea how much, especially if you want to do good at something, you want to market it well, you want it to be consistent, you want people to know what to expect and to be able to come back. Uh, I, my intention was to release an episode every two weeks, and for that reason, I waited to release it, and I backlogged a ton of episodes, um, but then it kind of um, basically... I had to edit one of them all by myself, which I'm, I'm a professional sound engineer, so that's that's not hard, um, except this one episode was like two hours of content, and it was all good, and it was a very important episode, so I had to really get in there and spend some time with it to get it down in length without neutering the content. I'm very pleased with the result, but that was, you know, between that and all the other work that I've been blessed with lately... Um, it did take an extra week or two to get that out. And so I am going to release one of the episodes that I've backlogged. This upcoming episode is with my friend, Michael Zimmerlich, uh, founder of 8020 Records. And um, it's a very, very fun interview, <laughs> a lot lighter than the second one, which was amazing, uh, but covered a topic of genocide as well as other things. And, and definitely, so this will be <laughs> a lot more fun. And uh, we talk about creativity. We talk about some of our favorite books. We talk about Walt Disney and Elon Musk and uh, Richard Branson and all kinds of fun entrepreneurialness um, and just kind of talk about creativity uh, from a, a business perspective. Also, Mike's record label is founded on the Pareto Principle. Uh, so we get into a little philosophy there, um, but uh, you know, just a little mystery of life stuff. But uh, for the most part, very fun episode, a lot shorter. So without further ado, here is my interview with my friend, Michael Zimmerlich. I am not a weed, I'm just an unloved flower. Was trying to be weed, but then they hard Stay discreet so they don't know my power. I am not a weed, but still this poison sprays on me. But I will stay still, and it will pollinate the will. Cause if you make your note Just a dare 
Aha! Ah, Michael Zimmerlich is here. Yes. Yes, finally. I'm, yeah, I'm here back in the studio. At long last, we're not on a phone. Yeah. No, that, that, that was great. It's like getting ready for a show. You're like, hey, can we do a podcast right now? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so ready for anything. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Zing. Well, um, it's good to have Michael Zimmerlick here in uh, I Create Sound Studio um, because uh, he's a close personal friend of mine and uh, I would consider a uh, colleague and um, a mensch, an ubermensch, if you will. Uh, Mike is a manager and also a uh, he owns a an entrepreneur. He has a record label called 8020 Records, um, which is uh, kind of based around the Pareto principle is it not yes it is yeah so what what uh what what made you glom on to eighty twenty as a concept right at the time it was just when i graduated uh, college actually and i really just found this principle called the Pareto principle which is basically the fact that um they found that 80% of things uh, yield 20% of the results or vice versa in both, not only in just business, but in nature as well. And in fact, in one of the, my favorite uh, nature examples is that they found that 80% of peas are in 20% of pea pods. And I thought that was an incredible discovery and realize of how much that rings true with all kinds of businesses. Normally, on average, 20% of your customers yield 80% of your revenue. And it just kind of blew my mind, honestly, on that whole concept. So I just kind of just kind of ran with it because I just thought it was so fascinating. It really made, was the first time that I realized how much your the results that you do is not directly related to how much work you put into it. And it really started mm. making me think on how to be smarter of the things that I'm doing, not right. to necessarily work less, but to be smarter on the work that I'm doing. Yeah. To take the work you're doing and put it toward something that's actually going to yield you benefit. Right. Exactly. Well, I mean, I guess in that way, it, it's sort of like the golden mean, right. Or the, the golden ratio when, in Leonardo, where it's like all of a sudden you see this, this ratio that exists in nature, you know, it's in your, it's in your body. It's in, plants it's in all these things and so someone finds this Pareto principle the 80 20 principle and it just seems to hold true across many things right and no one knows why no and, and it's not even a question of even why it's more or less a question of the it's actually what i discover is not necessarily even the numbers themselves but also the fact that not all things are created equally and that also is what ring true to me a lot as well is the fact that you're you know, it's not going to be even across the board that's not how life works so you're going to have things that are going to be more beneficial to you than other things and it right. really just helps you a lot in just realizing with life like what true truly make makes you happy and usually is that that smaller it's like finding that you know the 20 percent of other cases that of everything that you're doing that makes you happy and then take that 20% and make that 80% of your life. Right. You know, like yeah. there's, it's just like, it's really not even the numbers and specifically is the fact that, you know, there's part that is a small amount that is yielding you th the most out of your life. And then there's a larger amount that's yielding you the smallest amount in your life. Right. It's just identifying what those things are. Uh, Mike, I just got to say, it's so great to have you in the same room. Yes, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, Mike Mike now lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and uh, we're in Los Angeles, California. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're out for the, the weekend doing one of your power entrepreneur, like, weekends out here, uh, as you do. Yep. And um, uh, so, yeah, every time we have the chance, we, we try and get together. And um, it's, 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 very, uh, it's very cool. Um, so... 
You uh, so you went to Disneyland? I did. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge Disney nerd, so anytime I come out here, if I have a chance to go to Disneyland, I'll do it. Yeah, Disneyland is one of those things where it's just you know n- nobody believed Walt Disney when he was making Disneyland. Like they just thought it was a fool's errand. Like no one knew what he was envisioning. Oh no, they thought they were crazy. In fact, they, he actually had to have his brother go and get the investment to build Disneyland. So they he he's like, "Okay, Walt, go ahead and just make up what you want. Like have the big ideas. I'll figure out how to fund it." Yeah, well, and it's almost like I I can envision, you know, being a creative myself, if I was the person who was doing both, I think it would sort of like stifle my ideas. Like maybe I would be tempted to go smaller on some things that I needed to go bigger on at Disneyland, right? You know, like you know, I mean Tomorrowland, for instance, you know, like, "Oh, well, maybe we don't need Tomorrowland. Maybe we can just have, you know, a concession stand because <laughs> we need money. <laughs> oh, no question. And, you know, Walt, Walt's o- always original plan was the fact that he always wanted to create an amusement park, but something that always was changing, you know, for the times. It was a constantly evolving park, but something that, you know, families can always go to, both, y- you know, young and old, um, can go to and enjoy themselves and have and have fun. That was always his envision to do so. And even later on, when when the, he uh, found out that Disneyland was so finite as far as what he could do, because so much sprawled around the area and essentially created Anaheim around that, you know, of what we know of Anaheim today. Yeah, sort of walled in. Right, he got Disneyland, himself walled yeah. in, and that's where where Walt Disney World came about because he realized he's like, I don't want to do that. I want to have this problem ever again. So literally, he his team they went to Florida, they they scoped out a whole bunch of areas, and then decided that they're going to build this in Orlando, and they just bought swamp land at like dirt cheap prices and just bought as much as they possibly can, so that this way Walt would never have a problem ever again in having a you know any kind of space issues. Well, and people you know pay thousands thousands of dollars to fly to Orlando and buy tickets to Disney World. You know, it's like it, one of those, if you build it, they can come dream stories, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, which I think is, is really inspiring as a creative. Um, you know, I know my dad is really inspired by Walt Disney. Um, and he's funny because he thinks about like the studio that he built and the team that he built, like all the people of art, all the artists, teams of artists and artisans and craftspeople that it took to run Disney Studios. And, you know, that's no small feat, right? And that's a lot of logistics. You know, that's a lot of moving parts, you know, especially for especially for a creative to, to sort of head up, you know, because I say it's creatives is sort of like not practical people. <laughs> yes. And Walt was definitely not a practical person. <laughs> But that's one of the things that, you know, that's one of the things I admired about him. And it's also the same thing true with, I loved his, always his uh, attention to detail. I really liked and admired right. that aspect of him. And um, I, I can go all day long as all the different stories that I know of, of Walt Disney. And, you know, some of them are true, some of them are not. Like, for example, uh, little things like, you know, there's, if you ever go into a Disney park, there's no gum ever sold in any of the stores and goes that goes all the way back to Walt Disney oh wow and so because he found when the park opened that there would be like gum on the floor things like that and he just thought it was just such a disgusting thing and also they would have to clean it up and he was very big about cleanliness in his parks so he just banned gum from being sold in the parks and those things still ring true today like even after he passed a lot of people who took the mantle understood and respected that level to detail. In fact, when they built the Magic Kingdom, 
it's on a, actually on a second level. So when actually you go into the park, there's a whole level underneath it. They actually built up. And one of the things that they did this time around was when they built Main Street, it's actually at an angle. It's an a- actually at an incline. Oh, really? Why is that? The biggest reason why is when people leave the park. So that they're actually, when they leave, they're going on a decline, which helps out for two reasons. Wow. One is for the fact that at the end of the day, everyone's tired. Tired. So this is a lot easier on people's feet. Oh my gosh. But also the second thing too is that it makes it quicker for people to leave the park. (laughs) So they can get people in and out. They can get people in and out. Oh my goodness. So it's it's those little things. But again, it comes down to the Pareto principle, right? It's like sometimes those little things make a huge difference. And I'm sure that has helped out immensely with their parks and doing exactly what they were intending it to do, making it so much easier for people to leave the park. So it gives more time for their crew to clean up and get everything ready for the next day. Right. Well, you know, I'm, you're kind of getting me to nerd out a little bit here because, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of success by design and especially even in practical things. Like to me, design matters and it contributes to uh, all kinds of things like overall happiness and well-being. I mean, just look at the way that you design a room, you know, your bedroom could make you feel better um, or cleaning your house somehow has this effect on your brain. It just makes your, makes your soul feel cleaner. Um, I think that's a very good example of that. And I know another shared love of ours is Apple products Yes, and Steve Jobs. And I, I think one of the things that, that Apple has lost in that, um, in that time after Steve Jobs passed away, um, I think the company, you know, this is one of the things that people said when, um, when uh, Tim Cook took over the company, they were a little bit concerned that he was a little bit more left brained and not as, not as innovative. And um, I kind of have noticed some feature creeping into the iPhone. Like there's like, you know, it takes like three clicks to get somewhere important, like on your music. And as opposed to like before, it was always like you hear Steve yelling at people be like, no, it has to happen in one click or else it's no good. <laughs> you know, like, Oh, no, I 100% agree. I mean, people like you know, Walt Disney and Steve Jobs are are truly unique people in the sense of that they really think through about the design of things. And it's so challenging to be able to pass that along to other people because it requires a very specific kind of mindset. Even Disney, even has as successful as it is today and still as innovative as it is, is nowhere in, near in comparison to what Walt Disney was when he was alive. And same thing true with Steve Jobs, of course, as well. And Tim Cook, I think, is still doing a spectacular job. But there's no question, ever, ever since that Steve Jobs has passed, the innovation of Apple has no question have has declined and you're right we're seeing a lot of feature creep right now into their products and you're seeing seeing a lot of forced uh forced upgrades and things that seem more profit driven than uh product driven yeah exactly and i think you know companies go through their cycles and things like that too and apple even to this day is probably is still i would consider one of the most innovative companies in the world of what they have accomplished um during its life you know lifespan up until this point and i'm hoping that is something that can come back in the future. I mean, every company goes through those, even Disney. I mean, you see, you know, in the 70s and 80s, they were in a lot of trouble. They were, I think, almost close to bankruptcy back then. Einstein. (laughs) 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 Yeah. So it was, you know, it was... You know, but then, of course, then when uh, Michael Eisner came aboard a lot, you know, especially in the beginning, he's done a lot to you know, revitalize that company and bring it back to, you know, essentially what everyone considers the golden age uh, where Mm -hmm. we have classics like The Little Mermaid and The Lion King and Aladdin and all those films. And that brought them into another era. And even, you know, and even then, you know, as, you know, as 
recent as I think 10, 20 years ago, the parks weren't doing that well either. And now the parks are the major driving factor of of Disney, of the entire corporation. Yeah. So, you know, they go all th- go through their ebbs and flows. You know, Disney is killing it right now, but right now they're being smart. And instead of, you know, in- instead of, you know, innovating internally, they're, gra- you know, acquiring as many innovative and creative uh, properties as possible and and utilize and not just utilizing them correctly but also making sure that they stay out of the way of the cre- of the creative right and I think that was a very smart move for Disney to be at where if they are having struggles innovating innovating internally get innovators outside of it like bringing in Pixar for example and bringing yes. on people truly innovative people like John Lasseter and getting them yeah. more and more involved with the company I just started Ed Catmull's book um, Creativity Inc. Oh, that was an incredible book. I, f- I finished that not too long ago, in fact. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Like, he said even the even the design of the table, like, they had this long boardroom table, and they found that pretty quickly, like, 40 people in a room would stratify into, like, classes of, like, important, like, not important. You get to speak, you don't get to speak, and they even ended up with name cards at one point, and it was just this sort of power dynamic that they didn't want at Pixar, and so they actually had to bring in a round table, to like help to uh, even out so everybody felt like they had a voice and a contri- contribution because that's where the creativity came from, from the bottom or the top. Yep. And um, the funny thing was is that uh, he said that even after they changed the table, that there was still this lingering like culture of name cards that happened like that the structure that that everybody sort of still stepped to even after the the long board table was removed and this like more cohesive like round table um had come in and it like literally the design of the room the shape of the room affected the people dynamic and what kind of innovation was able to occur absolutely it made everyone feel so inclusive to the conversation um, one of the things I also like when they when they when they changed it, yeah, yeah, when they changed it up, exactly, they felt so much more involved, and that's when, like you said, a lot of the creativity happens because you know when somebody speaks up, no matter what their role is, everyone can have a good idea, or you know sometimes even bad ideas or okay ideas can lead to good ideas. Right, and that's the whole point is is make sure that everyone has those conversations and come from different perspectives, and that's when you start landing on things that are just truly golden. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'm going to tangent all over the place. I apologize in advance, but this is my podcast. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we tangent all the time. I'm, um, not, I'm so used to this. That's yeah, fine. And uh, I'll try not to forget my tangent while I'm caveating the tangent. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the things that, that I have noticed is that um, when you... Um, Oh God! Now I really forgot my train. Oh, Yo, you you tangent off your I tangent. Just, now, I just didn't fell you? off the tangent wagon. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying like the thing about the uh, the table and then uh, man, I uh, I don't know. We're talking about like the name cards and and contributing to you know everyone being able to contribute. Bad ideas. We're talking bad about ideas. bad ideas. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so like one of the things that happened to me as a music producer was that um, because all music production has become at your fingertips, you know, in one place on a computer, um, that there was sort of this thing that happened where I was never okay with making a demo. And, you know, a lot of people in the industry say, well, you know, there's no such thing as demos anymore. And that's true if you're shopping your material. But if you're writing, it's really important to be able to just get an idea out and not judge it. 
And it wasn't until I realized that the editor phase, the red pencil doesn't come out until after you're done writing, um, that I had the ability to kind of start creating again because I was blocked. Like I couldn't, I would sit down and if it could, if it wasn't coming out like this finished masterpiece right off the, right off the table, it, it was like canned. And that just meant I wasn't writing. And so I found that this, this process of like being able to say the most obvious dumb idea possible that half the time it would be the most brilliant idea possible. And the other half the time it would make everybody laugh. And then that would spawn someone else's great idea. And then all of a sudden you're, you're off to the races. And, um, you know, so I thought a lot about the structure of, you know, how we go about creating something and also the space that we create for that to occur, not just physically, but also in time. How do you create enough time for yourself to not have all the pressures of I gotta I gotta Instagram this I gotta you know I gotta get this many people to my show I gotta blah 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 I gotta do all these things I gotta figure out how I'm gonna sell it and pay my rent you know like I think that that defeats the artistic impulse. Absolutely, I mean it, it's definitely I feel a double edged sword because sometimes I find that when you have those kind of uh, pressures and deadlines um, that whether they are artificial or not that sometimes that can help spark really great ideas because you're forcing yourself to come up with something to put out there instead of just having all the time in the world where sometimes if you have all the time in the world then you may just start you know waiting till something is perfect to put it out there and then nothing happens or it takes way too long um, for anything to really occur. So I find that sometimes they can be beneficial, but also can be stifling as well, because if you're under that pressure and you're just like, okay, well, I just need to get this out. It's, if you took a little bit extra time, you might have gotten something that would have been amazing. So yeah. it, it's, it, definitely, it, can be, it can be a two-edged sword. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the things that I find amazing is like taking the garage band approach to getting an idea out. Like mm -hmm. literally most of my ideas now happen on voice memo because I don't want to overthink it. Uh, in the creative phase. I want to get it out as fast as possible while the zip is there and while everything's there. And then later, I like to go back and mine those ideas for brilliance and like actually maybe take a step where I sit down with someone else and like, hey, let's lay down a guitar track on this. Let's take this and flesh it out. Like, but I almost kind of feel like it's, there's a storyboarding phase. Like if you ever watch, you know, Disney, they don't, they don't, start painting frames right away they storyboard the shit right. out of it and then they literally go and they say all right well we're gonna actually you know put voices to this and we're gonna like make the movie before we make the movie and we're gonna see how it's working and they'll cut scenes i mean i was watching uh I think it was uh, Jungle Book and they had like a whole scene that they cut out that was supposed to be like the uh, it was supposed to be like the uh, the Beatles the the vultures were the Beatles and this whole scene and it like got canned because it just wasn't playing they had this rhino that character that the, they thought was going to be the comic relief but it just didn't work it didn't pace well and so rather than spend you know what you know 60 million dollars um, animating this scene in the movie, they actually cut it before they ever made it because they knew that it wasn't a part of the arc of the story. Absolutely. I find that, especially with the creative process, you need to, I think that's where the combination of the deadlines but also taking the time comes in really handy because when it comes to creative, I find that you should be 
keep on pumping things out as you go along the way, but have the process down. And even you said yourself, you come up with an idea, you immediately put it down, good or bad, whatever the case is, so you can revisit later and then yeah. tweak it and do different things. Even for myself, um, when I when I come up with an idea of what I want to do, what I usually will do is I'll first write it down immediately so I don't forget it, but then I'll start asking my very close uh, circle of people that I know and trust. And I may always... Uh, I might agree with them. I might not disagree with them. But right now, I'm just looking for that immediate feedback. Right. Because the immediate feedback is super valuable. Right. Because so this is somebody's honest opinion. Right. It's their yeah. honest opinion. And it's people that I know are going to be my honest opinion. Like, obviously, you are one of them. Um, but there's other people that I also will reach out to. So I get multiple different perspectives and ideas. And then yeah. I can bounce off of that saying, okay, do I really have something here? Or does it need to be tweaked? Or is it just absolutely horrible? And Yeah, I find I tend to do the same kind of thing. Yeah, and it helps me out so much to determine, okay, is this something that I should continue with or should I tweak maybe, or is this something, I c- can I do this now? If not, maybe I'll shelve it and I'll just keep it in place. And or you know, Mike, later. the real idea is the idea within that idea that you just had. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You get like ideaception going on, yeah. right? Where like all of a sudden like this idea spawned another idea. Yeah. And to actually bring this uh, back a little bit to Pixar, for example, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Ed Catmull, in fact, is the fact that every single Pixar film that ever came out started with a really bad idea. Like they said, every <laughs> single story, and he was dead serious. He's like, every story that they've ever wrote from Toy Story up until now, every single one started as a just a bad movie, like yeah. horribly. And but they needed some, they needed that jumping off point. They needed something to start off with that will help them get to where they are now. And yeah. they keep on they, they keep on tweaking it and keep on perfecting it and they keep on doing those things. But that's the whole point, right? Is that if they sat down and were hashing out, you know, trying to hash out the story and didn't communicate with each other, um, bouncing ideas off each other until they were at like proud of what they've accomplished, it would take them probably way too long. And then they would, or they would be like, all right, we're too far into this process now to really do anything about it. We just have to go with it. And the, the movie would have been mediocre. Like half the movies that come out in the animated space, I think. Right. Now. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, they, they take too much time or, you know, they don't, they don't really spend enough time tweaking that process up. And I, I'm not sure how the other animation studios do it but you know from what i've read from pixar is the fact the fact that they go through that process and they make it open communication with all, all the entire team asking ideas and throwing things out early but at the beginning at the beginning yeah. and obviously as the public we don't get that access to that information so we have no idea we just think that oh they just made another golden crown movie that is right. absolutely incredible but it was all this this time that was spent behind it that was tweaking it and tweaking it along the way until we got the final product and I think that's where the combination of, you know, as a creative taking the time to create something, but un- but also the same token is that you're constantly pumping out something. Yeah. And it's just maybe not necessarily be in front of everybody at the same time. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to segue into entrepreneurship, okay. which is a topic that's very near and dear to your heart. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, this is this is a guy who's uh, who's told me. I don't know if he's told the world this, but that his uh, idol is Richard Branson. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Richard. <laughs> he's, a, he's an interesting character. I, I very much admire him. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just the just the talking about, you know, creativity in terms of something that is applied to um business which i don't think a lot of people think about but um being a being starting new businesses in particular not necessarily running them but starting them like richard branson does is a very creative frame of mind 
Absolutely. Sometimes I, it, it's when you're starting a company, literally there's, there's truly no rules. There really isn't. There's maybe guidelines just like there is with art, but at the end of the day, it's your creation. You can do any way that you really see fit that makes sense for you. There is within really the law. No, within the law. <laughs> okay, yes. Within I mean, depending law. on which country you're in, right, too, you exactly. might be able to, I mean, or you can go off world like, uh, like uh, what's his name is trying to do, Tony Stark. I mean, uh, 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 SpaceX guy. Yeah, Tony Stark. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Elon Musk is Tony Stark. Yeah. Which, fun fact, he's actually made a cameo in Iron Man too. But Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, but anyway, so... Um, but that's the thing with entrepreneurship is the fact that, you know, we're really, you know, you find what guidelines that you have and those guidelines are, yes, the law is one of them, but other things too, your capabilities, what your skill sets are, um, you know, what your resources that you have available and seeing what you want to create out of it and what you find, you know, what fulfills you at the bottom, at the end of the day, what ultimately fulfills you. Yeah. When I started A20 Records, for example, I, I've never went to music business school. I didn't you know, do any kind of internships. I did nothing that, you know, in retrospect, could have definitely helped me out. But I didn't have any of those things. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, <laughs> I was a band nerd. I like, you know, I played Magic the Gathering. I played all these different things. Like I was like, I, I never really even went to concerts, honestly, when I started <laughs> A20 Records. Wow. I've never went to a local show ever in my life. Yeah. And I think I've went to, I can probably count on one hand at the time the number of you know of concerts i went to yeah i was never that kind of kid and so you just thought i want to make money let's pick music (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) that's exactly how i said it (laughs) let me give most of my money away (laughs) yeah right (laughs) it gives an 80 percent royalty that's actually one of the things that uh, got me uh got me introduced to mike was uh was the kind of zaniness of his concept and how um awesomely big and impossible it was well i mean i i started because i i honestly this is a funny story i started 820 records because when uh at that time, this is when the RIAA was suing everybody left and right. Yeah. So this is back in like the early to mid, uh, probably mid 2000s at this point. Gold plated swimming pools. Right. I'm only going to have two gold plated swimming pools. <laughs> right. Oh, I remember, I remember that. I remember that so well. That was Weird Al, wasn't it? Uh, I, don't, I don't recall, but yeah. He, he had something like that yeah. in one of his things. Because uh, he had like a whole thing about uh, don't download this song. Yes. It was one of, yes, yes. It was one of my favorites. And I, I thought that was hysterical. Yeah, but the RIAA was kind of being a little heavy-handed at the time. Yeah, they were they were being a big bully for I mean, I understand, you know, as a creative, it's it hurts so much when people pirate your music. Um but the thing token too, I thought that the, you know, I, I mean, give or take, you know, in the long term here, you know, the, it was fairly effective. I just think that it's also done quite a bit of damage to the reputation of the RIAA and as well as the record labels that I don't think can ever be repaired at this point yeah Uh, i think it tarnished a lot of their image when they were in turn trying to you know protect the you know protect the artists ultimately but you know that was the whole point is i felt that this could have been done so much better because also they were getting hit on both ends they're getting hit on the consumer end of backlash but also on the artist end too because also now a lot of artists were coming out saying we don't believe in what their labels are doing. Or in fact, right. our deals with the labels are are complete crap. They're like, crooked. They're yeah. crooked. And so I, at the time, I was trying to find out what ultimately what I wanted to land on. And uh, actually, my partner, um, he suggested starting a record label. And I was just so 
fired up about the music industry and wanting to make change and, and try to instead of trying to fight what was like clearly you know digital downloads at that time is what clearly wasn't going away and there and was it was a, an innovation right exactly yeah there I, I i was so fired up i said well let me let's try to you know try to figure out how to make a record label work in this kind of environment in this kind of a world where you know things are you know that most music was digitally downloaded and now it's it's, it's streaming is completely different now too so i knew that i i at the time saying okay if we're going to do a label how can we build a label that makes make sense for us to give as much as we can back to the artists? That yeah. was the whole point from day sort one. of like as a philosophical counter argument to right. the current state of affairs. Exactly. Yeah. How, how can I think we that's be... what made me excited. Yeah. I mean, well, same same with me is like I, I knew it was a crazy idea. I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what would be involved with that process. But I said, you know what? Let's just just go for it. Let me I'll I'll learn. I literally uh, got a couple of textbooks and I read through them and just the basics of, you know, record label marketing and music law, just so I had an idea of what I was doing. Yeah. And then I had a friend of mine who did electronic music and I said, hey, I have a con a sample contract I grabbed out of a book. Uh you know, I want you to be my guinea pig. I'll sign it. I'll figure out how to get you on iTunes. He goes, okay. And that was my first artist. Wow. Wow. So you just kind of like, okay, we'll just read a book on this and let's just try it. Yeah. Wow. I le- That's literally how I started. And a couple months after I signed that first electronic artist, a friend of mine, she mentioned that she knew these guys from since middle school that she was, she was friends with that was in a pop punk band. So I went to um, their show. It was literally the first local show I've ever went to and checked them out and absolutely loved loved seeing them live and loved the whole experience and I told them afterwards I told them about the record label and gave 80% back and that was enough uh, that they wanted to meet up with me and we talked for a bit and they wanted to sign on to A20 Records and that was the first band I ever had. You were certainly the purple cow um, with that 80% royalty. Yeah. It just gets people to listen, you know? Well, yeah, because especially right then was the perfect time to really uh, promote that because of the fact that so many labels were getting bad raps at the time, whether it was, was justified or not, you know, they were. Get, it was definitely a very, you know, the the image of labels was that that labels were taking advantage of artists. What, and that what was year the, was this? This was two thousand and eight. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 2000, 2007, 2008. The, the idea of 820 Records came around 2007, um, but then 2008 was when it really was formed. Yeah. And, and I seem to recall that you and your partner had played around with internet radio before that. Is that right? Yeah. So we had, we had a company called Indie Radio back then. And um, when, when I graduated high school, in fact, I had two uh, two notebooks when I went to class. One was on taking notes, and this is notebook, so it kind of dates me a little bit. Um, this was back in the early 2000s. Don't you mean an Evernote? Yeah, Evernote. Yeah, what? what? Don't you? Yeah, of course. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. Uh-huh. So I, um, I had two notebooks, one on... Um, that was taking class notes and then another was just business ideas and anytime I came with a business idea I would write them down and I always had a passion for technology and entertainment so I was always coming up with ideas that would combine those two passions of mine together Mm -hmm. and so um, myself I've music's always been in my blood i you know, play piano when I was five, six years old. I started taking private lessons and played trumpet all through high school and through college. And so music's always been a, a big part of my life in that way. So I decided, well, what if I came up with a website that 
artists could upload their music for free because at the time internet radio was huge um but not as we see it now this was like back in the winamp days and, <laughs> oh my gosh yeah, yeah. and so uh, you know where you can i found these various different internet radio channels through winamp like you know the electronic channels and all that yeah. kind of stuff i was so into that stuff so i love that whole thing of being introduced to new music in that way so yeah. i said what if we had like a centralized place because right now they were all just individual radio stations. So I said, what if we had just one location and artists can upload their music for free and they just selected what genre it was and then we automatically put into rotation for that particular genre. And then anybody can go on our website and oh. choose whatever genre they wanted. Cool. And they would they would be able to play that music. And we had some really cool ideas too. We had uh, an idea where, okay, you know, I know a lot of times when I was listening to radio, if I really liked the song, if I didn't write down or mention what the song was, I would, there, there was no Shazam. There was nothing like that back then. Yeah. There was nothing. So, you know, once the song was done, that's it. Like that you lost your window finding out what that song was. That was so, owner of a lonely heart. Yeah. Ex- yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or like, or this was for internet radio station. So they just keep on playing the song like one after the other. And if he yeah. didn't write down what the song, the title and the artist was at that time, that was it. So we actually built in that we kept track, a log of the last, I think it was the last eight hours of what was played. So if any time that you forgot what was played, you can literally go back on onto the website and find what was played in the last eight hours. Right, which was like not something for a while. You couldn't do that on terrestrial radio. Yeah, um, that, that was impossible on terrestrial radio. At the time, yeah. So, you know, things like that. And we built in, you know, profiles for artists where you can check out, you can go, if you saw a song that played that you really liked, you can actually go to the artist page. You can actually individually stream each of the songs on there. Um, you can communicate with them. We had a whole messaging system built into Indie Radio. Um, so we had some really cool stuff. Um, but this was something that we did on the side with my partner because I was going to ASU and my partner was going to U of A and I was working, um, I was working uh, part-time uh, doing technical support. I was working 28 to 30 hours a week and a full-time student. So this was literally just a side project that I worked on the yeah. weekends with my buddy. And I would like go down to Tucson um, in Arizona and work with him when I could. And so it took about two years to build it. It yeah. took a long time to build this thing. And by that point, when that was finally built... Pandora- In internet years, two years is like two decades. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time we launched... And, and we're talking about uh, like launching, we mean like beta. Like workable enough for let people try it. Yeah. And so we put it out there. And by that point, you know, Pandora was getting very popular at this point. Um, Last.fm was huge. Um, before that, it was called Audio Scrobbler. And now it was called Last.fm. Thank FM. God they changed that yeah, name. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. So... Uh, we we launched it and it actually did pretty well. Just like strictly word of mouth, we didn't advertise it. I mean, this was you know pre Facebook for crying out loud. Like I think Facebook just came out, um, so that was brand new. So there was no you know yeah. yeah I remember little, they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have a edu. Email right. Anymore. I was I, as soon as ASU came up on, I was like, okay, boom, I got it. Yeah. So there, nothing like that existed back then. So we just like you know. You put it out there, word of mouth to our friends and things like that. And we got about about 3,000 visitors a month. Wow. We, with no advertising, That's no nothing. Good. So, you know, we we clearly saw there was something there. And people were, you know, we got artists to upload their music. And we also found this little community was being formed because we saw we noticed that other artists were messaging each other, too, um, about their music and giving them feedback. So we were forming this little community. So we were really happy of what we were developing, but uh, at the same token, we we did you know back then I had very high hopes of where this would go, and we saw how big 
Pandora was getting. We saw how big Last.fm was going. And we really didn't feel strongly that what we were providing was so different than them. Right. And so at that point, we said, okay, we need to figure out like we need to figure out how we're going to make ourselves different. So we're trying to come up with other ideas on how to make ourselves differentiate from what Last.fm and Pandora were doing, but not something that they could easily copy, like try to create our own uh, sense of community that they wouldn't be able to to accomplish on their end. And so we're coming through that, going through that conversation and um, literally out of the blue, he just came to me and said, how do you feel like starting a record label? So <laughs> like that's, and then we decided that's how he's kind hard of shifted together. Yeah. Hard left. We yeah. went, you know, went all these government conversations and at that time too, we were doing both. We were still trying to tweak indie radio and seeing where we wanted to go with it. And then while also looking into uh, creating a 20 records. Right. And then it didn't take long to realize, okay, I can't, I can't handle doing both of these at the same time. Yeah. If I really want to make something happen, I need to focus on one. And, at that time, you know, we we still couldn't figure out where indie radio was going to ultimately go, and A Twenty Records was definitely something more appealing to me of what I wanted to do. Yeah. So we made that decision of okay, we should start winding down indie radio and start focusing more on eighty twenty. Yeah. Well, and you know what occurs to me is that um, nothing ever happens in a vacuum. So the work that you did um, with the radio station exposed you to this artist community thing that was happening that you were unaware of until then. And you also had a technical background um, with IT and programming. So it's like all these things sort of like came together to make your own unique viewpoint on what you wanted to do. Oh, absolutely. Indie Radio was an immense uh, educational experience in in creating A20 Records. I learned so much, not only the, the technical aspect of things, but also working with artists. Yeah. That was my first yeah. foray into working with artists. I mean, I would, there were some artists. It was <laughs> Actually, I do have a fun story. So back before in, Indie Radio was um, right away, excuse me, when I first started Indie Radio, I was a uh, uh, senior in college it, it was right at that time where we launched. It was when I was a senior in college. And so I was trying to get as many people to use the site as possible. And I was in a recording class because I really wanted to learn more about recording. And so uh, one of my fellow classmates mentioned that he was in a band. And one time we went on a field trip to recording studio and he played one uh, the CD of his band. And I loved his music so much. And I told, so I told him about any radio. I said, you got to get the music up on the site. And, um, and, uh, so he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll be more than happy to. And like almost every time I saw him, like during class of the week, I asked him to upload it and asked him to do it. And finally, like towards the end of the semester, he finally did it, <laughs> but, it made, but it still instilled to me that, that patience of doing it. And, uh, sorry, Derek, I love you to death, but that's, uh, cause I'm still really good friends with him today. Yeah. I, in fact, um, I just saw him this morning. In fact, okay. so, um, uh, so he, is so, he still doing music? Uh, no, he's not doing music anymore. Aww. But so, but the funny part was that after that happened with Indie Radio, uh, a year later, when A20 Records was formed, uh, when I signed my first band, which is a pop punk band, I realized that they were good friends with this band. Right. That my um, that my classmate was in. So I reached out to them, and they ended up being my second band that was oh, on A20 awesome. Records, and that band was called uh, Forty Two Eternal. Yeah, that so that was that band. So, um, and I'm still 
amazing friends with them today. But it was so funny because I learned back then about, you know, patients working with musicians. Yes. And, you know, they have 10, and it's understandable, they have 10 billion things that they have to do. And, and you know, especially at that time, you know, I'm just a brand new website. They had no idea. I was just a random classmate, right? But yeah. Oh, it's okay. Like, yeah. yeah, sure. Oh, that sounds yeah. cool, whatever. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it, it made me, it, it helps me earlier on uh, put a perspective on things on the priority of what I was trying to accomplish and also knowing that you know art the way that artists think and um, so we developed a lot of that kind of patience and also how should I be approaching them how should I be hand- handling them and also be okay with the fact that you know, if I'm going to be working with artists I'm going to have to constantly follow up with them to remind them to okay I need this done or you know don't forget about me like I would love to work with you yeah. so you know I learned I learned that way back um, in the indie radio days of how to to work with artists and how to get them involved with what I'm doing and how to communicate with them and you know all those different kinds of things speaking of <laughs> speaking of artists and um, follow-up and just constant like change um, you manage uh, Captain Squeegee and yes I do Danny Torgelson is their lead singer and he strikes me as like lightning in a bottle when it comes to just <laughs> ideas the man never stops that's putting it lightly yes <laughs> yes Danny is like that kind of person he's a captain well first I gotta say Captain Squeegee is if you haven't seen them live Go see them live. If they're in your town or your city, like cancel your grandma's birthday and take grandma <laughs> with you to go see. Because I have like probably one handful of bands that I've indie bands that I've seen during my time in LA seeing indie bands. Like on one hand, I can count the number of shows that have floored me and even my friends. Like, you know, it's just they put on a show. It is something to behold. Yeah, they're 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 quite amazing to work with, for I think, sure. Like, how many members do they have? Seven, Se- seven members. So, what are the instruments? So they have uh, drums, percussion. They have a sax player, trombone, uh, keyboard, guitar, bass, and then uh, voc- lead vocals and trumpet. So, like, kind of a sound man's nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. Also, and then and then one of their guys like plays guitar and keys. Yeah, play. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's the other thing. Dude. They'll do a lot of them will do multiple instruments, and cl- including the trombone player will also have like a like a synth setup too. Yeah. So they have a lot on stage. Yeah. So like you know, I mean, not to not to go to not to belabor this point too much, but you know, I mean, we're talking about artists, and um, you know, I think you know you could probably tell a couple fun stories about managing artists. Oh, a few. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that you would they would be happy to hear. How about let's just pick one of them. Oh man. Okay. Let me try and think of a good management story it's something fun um just like at a window into the world i'm trying to think of a good like a really good management story i mean i remember um when we were at the mcdowell mountain music festival i got to come see that that was fun yeah i really liked doing that one um yeah that was um that was a really good show they did a great job for that i'm trying to think of like you know man. wasn't there like something like about like getting getting the lead singer to the stage like Oh, yeah, well, that happens all the time <laughs> with Danny. Uh, see, what's, what's great about Danny is the fact that he's such he's such a creative mind that trying to rope him in is definitely a challenge. And he knows this. This is why I can I could talk about this freely because he knows this is how he is. But so he'll he'll he's the king of last minute. 
he like nobody else is <laughs> as good as he is when it comes to last minute. And, and there's it, a lot of competitors out no, there. There's a lot of competitors out there, but nothing beats Danny on any level. He somehow manages to pull it off last minute. He'll come up with these last minute just pure genius ideas. And I would tell him all the time, why didn't you think about this beforehand? But that's not how he thinks. He thinks on the spot and he does it so well. And he like literally the reason why we're trying to get him on stage is that he was going to stores and buying like props for the stage and like he oh literally he literally got these like i don't even know how he found up but he got these like uh these like ceramic like moldings of mountains to kind of be representing the mcdowell for the mountain, mountain wow. music festival and bring him up on stage and he was doing like the day of he was like going going around to these different places and just picking up all these different yeah. props and things like that uh, i think he got like try to get like a bubble gun and things like that too, to shoot <laughs> into the audience like all kinds of crazy stuff that's how he is but yeah he thrives off of that i find Um, yeah that's why he does such a good job when you know when it comes to even music videos too is that oh the music videos are off the hook like okay pause the podcast right now go google uh captain squeegee on youtube and you'll be not disappointed (laughs) The, the, the music videos are incredible and you know he's you know a lot of things isn't there a delorean in the last one that's a fun story so so one of the last the last music video that we uh, released last year um, was called Our Children, and um, it was supposed to be this you know it, it was it was the first uh, single off of the new album that we're about to you know we just released uh, as well, and so when it came time to come up with a music video for this, Danny wanted to do I want to do a a crazy comeback party kind of video, and they've never done one before. And that's the other thing I like about Danny is that every music video he wants to bring something new to the table, so it's not the same thing over and over. Again. Yeah, like they had they had the guy from Robot Chicken to animate one of their videos. Yeah, we had two animated videos, but even those we had one that was uh, claymation based. Yeah, and we had another one that was. Um, 2D animation and in fact the claymation one um, the reason why that he worked for Robot Chicken was that because he used that music video in his portfolio and he did some truly innovative works in our music video for claymation oh, some, wow. some like point of view shots and all kinds of really really interesting uh, you know tactics that he was like able to do like almost never been done before that, kind of stuff exactly and wow. that helped him land the job with Robot Chicken that's incredible so um, oh, so, so you're saying it, it wasn't the other way around. He didn't work for Robot Chicken. He actually got the job with Robot Chicken because of the Captain Squeegee video. Exactly. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So, <laughs> so he was, um, I, I think he was still working for Adult Swim at the time, but it wasn't specifically with Robot Chicken. Right. Oh, okay. So yeah. So like, you know, another another uh, good story to actually follow up with passion projects because sometimes they pay off. Oh, no question. Yeah. So with our children, I remember this, we were putting everything together and it was, the I think it was the week before and then he just mentions me like in a text message going i think we should put a delorean in this music video and i told my danny it's a week out how <laughs> what do you mean get a delorean you're like do we how? even have how like no do, do we have the even have the budget for this i i don't you know so he goes don't worry about it i'm like what do you mean don't worry about it <laughs> So all of a sudden, like you're the guy who he he pays you to worry about it, right? right? Exactly. I'm like, I should be worried about this stuff. What do you mean? Don't worry about it. And then like two days later, he he he's like, I got a DeLorean. I'm like, how did you do that? He goes, I went on Craigslist, found an Arizona Arizona DeLorean club, and reached out to to the club, and somebody responded. He's like, we got it covered. So 
that's how he thinks. So, and sure enough, this guy rolls up with this awesome DeLorean, and we roll it into the the set onto set, and it's now in the video. But that you know, that's how he is. He just he he'll he figures it out. Like he just comes up with this crazy idea, and he just figures out how to make it happen. And that's why I love working with him so much. Is that we 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 both are very similar in that way. Where I I tend to worry a lot more than he does at times, but. You know, we both figure out if it's something, if we want to make this happen, we both come together and saying, okay, we're going to make this happen. He wanted to do, um, in fact, uh, he wanted, he had this idea when we first got together was he wanted to create a uh, USB drives that look like a key. And so we said, uh, okay. Like, a, like a, a door. Like a, like a door, like an old fashioned door. Yeah. Oh, okay. A door key. Yeah. And so we're like, all right, how, how are we going to make that happen? So, um. Uh, so um, my team, my um, my brother was a partner of mine at the time, and so my my brother he actually did some research and found this company in China that actually did make these things, and we were able to put Captain Squeegee's logo on them. So we actually we did the homework, did the research, and found out how it could be done, and uh, and then worked with Danny to figure out what we wanted to put on the key, and we came up with all kinds of ideas. I I even suggested to him and saying let's put like. We came up with the idea of putting um, the charts on there for the music because uh, Captain Squeegee, oh, cool. we we know as a as a musicians band, meaning that right. musicians love that band because of how complex their music right. is. So we want let's put the charts on there and all kinds of stuff. And those things sold out like very quickly once yeah. we got them released. And it was a brilliant idea that Danny had that we ran with and figured out how we're going to do it and ultimately what's going to look like, what's going to be on there, and it was a huge hit. Cool. Um, so you kind of, kind of to, uh, give a little bit of promo and shout out to your bands and to your label, um, you have Warp Tour coming up, right? Oh, we do. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. That's exciting. So we have two of our artists on Warp Tour, uh, Captain Squeegee is one of them and they're playing the Phoenix State. And then we have this other band called, uh, Civil Youth, uh, that's based in Philadelphia and they're playing the, uh, Camden, New Jersey date. Oh, wow. Yeah. Heck Yeah. So I'm very, very excited. Cool. Very, very excited to get to um, Tour. Do you have dates off the top of your head or a place people can look? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can go to Warp Tour's website and they will have the listing of all the dates there. Um, if I remember correctly, June 26th is for Phoenix and then I believe it's July 13th for the Camden date. It's either the 12th or 13th. I'm pretty sure it's the 13th. Cool, cool. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, you know, kind of talk about, uh, geek dumb, geek dumb. Okay. Yeah, what do you want to talk about and, the geek well, dumb? so I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, cause I know, I know we're probably at the, the longish mark on the podcast. So I just wanted to kind of like segue into something to, to final finalize the podcast. Um, so you are a big magic, the gathering player. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm kind of curious if you, cause I like to get philosophical on the podcast. I'm kind of curious if you, if you've noticed that, um, the, the things, anything that you've sort of learned from playing an imaginative game like that, has that even, you know, somehow translated into other things that you do? Like, have you been able to like, could you make some parallels between your experience playing a game and being in a part of a subculture and how, how you were able to innovate or something like that? A hundred percent. I could, I could probably literally create a book on just that alone. I mean, okay. So give me like chapter one, chapter one, uh, 
I can give you some of the, the main aspects of it. So, um, you know, with Ma- with Magic the Gathering, which if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's a collectible card game. It's one of the most popular collectible card games in the world. In fact, there's millions and millions of Magic players out there. And um, so what the idea is you get a pack, you open it up, you buy a pack of cards, and it's a randomized pack, and you get, you know, each card has different abilities and different things that you can do with them. And then you essentially build your deck from that, and then you can play against other players. So what I found out when I started playing Magic, I was about 12, 13 years old, I learned a lot about uh, deck. what's called deck building because you, you have certain... Uh, requirements on how you have to build the deck because there's literally thousands of cards there's little yeah, yeah. This, i forgot the numbers now it's like you know i think it's like 40 50 000 different wow. cards i mean right. it's huge so you you have to you know different combinations of cards that you put in the deck but there's certain regulations on how you build the deck and what you can do in there there's various different types of strategies that are involved and there's no question that Understanding deck building helps me build a business. Really, it's the same thing. It's you have the foundation of these are your resources, and you have to make sure you have a certain number of resources in there to accomplish what you do. And the the strategy of what your end game is has to be determined on how many resources you have in your deck. Hmm. So, are you you know is it the deck going to be more of a controlish type of deck, which means you need to have more resources, and your goal is to be have a slower game because of it? Is it going to be more of an aggressive type of deck where you're trying to defeat the opponent as quickly as possible? Right. Which means that you know you have to be very fast with your resources, but if you're not able to defeat your opponent over you know within that time frame, it's going to become far more challenging to defeat them in the long game. So. Those ty- ty- kinds of strategies, no question, help me build a business because knowing, okay, what is my end game? What's going to be the long term? Um, what can I do in the short term? What kind of resources do I have? And building that foundation for myself of of understanding those types of, types of strategies. What kind of risks are you willing to take or Ex- not take? Exactly. Yeah. That's all. That's a huge amount of the game of not only the deck building process but the actual gameplay itself. In addition to that, even I played in a lot of tournaments, and that also learned a lot about business through the tournaments too. Um, being, um, you know, being a good, uh, good sportsmanship. I mean, that's something that you know a lot. You know, I learned in sports as well, but also in magic tournaments too. Like, you know, you know, having you know, supporting other players, uh, having a good match, making sure you're not a sore loser. Um, you know, making you know, making friends, and, and you know, through that way, you know, I made a, yeah. a lot of my friendships were built off of Magic: The Gathering. <laughs> it's amazing. A lot of my friends, I've you know, I've got introduced to them through through Magic, or I just happened to knew knew them through other circumstances but then when i found that they play magic I'm like oh well, let's get together and play magic cards and some cool. of my best friends today are because of that mm-hmm. um uh, trading was another thing because i have a certain card of a certain value you have another card of certain value and trading that was actually my first foray into what a business was like because <laughs> i was selling you know i was you know trading cards with that with this kind of value trying to see if i can eke out the deal so it's a little bit in my favor <laughs> Uh, you but know, still seems like an even trade. It yeah. still seems like an even so trade. So but I still got like yeah. the little upper hand, <laughs> like those kind of things. Um, also, make sure that I wasn't getting taken advantage of too, and mm-hmm. doing my homework. All those things, no question, have helped me out with today on how I run my own company. Yeah. So, uh, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so much that that magic has taught me. Um, you know, because games in general are definitely there's a lot in gaming that can be in general that can be um, translated over to companies, but Magic, especially because the fact it's a collectible card game, in addition to that, uh, has so many parallels to entrepreneurship. 
That's really cool. Well, uh, a little disclosure: I have never played Magic. Oh, well, I may have to bring Dex out <laughs> one this while. One yeah, of one of these play. longer trips that you're out here, and we have enough time, we definitely uh, should uh, should foray Steve into that. It's uh, one of those games game. where I, I tell everybody when they ever said I want to play, and said, "Okay, well, just to understand the basics of the game will take about an hour." Yeah. To understand the basics, and then to master it will take your life. Like I've been playing this game for oh jeez, um, well age, age me a little more, uh, almost over twenty years now. I've been playing that game for twenty years, and yes. I'm still nowhere like near pro level. Spring chicken, not even close. <laughs> and I don't play as much as I used to, you know, back then. But still, like you know, it's a game that is constantly evolving, constantly changing. Um, you know, I still keep keep track of it. I actually, as I like to joke that I I keep track of like like what people do with MMA. Like they go on and they watch the fights and they do and like look right. at all the stats. Right. I do that with Magic. I see who the top players are. I watch when they have the big tournaments. I watch the so it's the like streams. fantasy baseball. Almost yeah. like, you know, there's both baseball cards that you can play. Exactly. Yeah. So I kind of so I, when I when I hang out with my friends, I'll play casually. I don't really go to tournaments anymore, but I'll play casually with my friends. Um, but then other than that, I I still like to keep track of you know where the pros are at, what they do and seeing how they play the cards and what the strategies are. Because yeah. I find it's just so interesting um, of a game and they're always doing things that are super cool and and um, even to, you know, just a th- for an amazing throwback, today, it, uh, this uh, year is their 25th anniversary. Oh, wow. So they're pulling out all the stops. In fact, they um, each set, um, they'll do like almost like different kinds of planes of existence so they have like a right. like egyptian themed or horror themed and things like that and they actually revisited back to the original plane of the of the game which they haven't done since like the early 2000s wow and it was so cool because like they'll have references to like some of the older cards or the older characters because there's a, like a whole story behind the game too um it's not just even about the cards they actually have these 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 epic stories that they are telling through the cards mm-hmm. and um it was just it was which you me- take part in creating right like as as a player sort of yeah, yeah. i mean you, they have like the underlying story that happens but then you have the cards that help tell that that are helping tell that part of the story. Right, right. So um, I don't really get into it's the story. It's almost like end a choose your own adventure version of the story a little bit. Uh, kind of. It's yeah. more It's more or less that um, when we're playing our game, that there's cards that referencing the the story that has happened. Oh, okay. So imagine if you were like, if like this thing happened in a chapter, but now it's encapsulated into a card that that happened in this chapter. So of I get book. it. So it's like the ultimate fandom then. Yeah. In other words, like you, the geek, the more you know about obscure things, the cooler you are. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's like if you're like playing a game on, Star- like, well, Star Wars had a collectible card game, but in like, it, but they had cards that would reference parts of the films. So yeah. Like you had a card that was like, or you had like a tool that was called like Luke's lightsaber or something like that. You yeah. Know what I mean, so it's not you're not necessarily telling your own Star Wars story, but what you're doing is you're utilizing aspects of the story to play out your game. Right. Right. Well, Mike, thanks for being on the podcast. This is uh, always a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, I I would like to uh, thank the audience for subscribing to the podcast and for joining this brand new thing that I'm trying out. I hope you uh, I hope you find it interesting. Uh, so parting words from Mike, is there anything that you'd like to share with the audience or any ask you have of them to something to check out? Uh, I would say... Don't ever be afraid to try and don't ever be afraid to fail. I think that's the the biggest takeaway from from this is that if you spend too much time thinking about things, then nothing's going to ultimately happen. Try things out. You know, chances are it will fail. Like you're most likely 
going to fail, but those are the ways that you're going to find what's going to succeed. So I would cool. say always try. Um, don't be afraid to fail. And um, you want to find out more, you can go check out our website. It's uh, 8020records.com. That's 8020records.com. Sweet. Thanks for being here. If Thanks, Steve. you make your uh, then it is. <laughs>